You know, there's probably nothing more central to Christianity than the icon of the cross. You, you see it everywhere. In fact, uh, you see it in jewelry. You see the cross in, I mean, on murals. You see it on billboards. The icon of the cross has been, it, it's, it's, it's internationally known as a symbol for Christianity. In fact, even above the atrium right there, we have our very own. It's a, a symbol of, of what it means. But I will tell you this, I do wonder, I do wonder at times if Americans understand what I would say is the devastation of it. Because if, if you had talked to somebody in the first century church, there's absolutely nothing glamorous about that. If you had talked to, to Peter or Paul or John, or if you had talked to someone in the New Testament church, you know, we hear about these disciples, but there were many disciples that, that didn't ever make it into the canon, if you will, never made it into the pages of Scripture. I wonder if Americans realize the heavy devastation that that symbol represents. I don't think it's that in the American church that we're not familiar with the cross, I wonder if we're just too familiar with it altogether. If we understand really what's going on. We've been going through a, a series called Pivotal Moments. And, and I can't think of anything more pivotal in the life of Christ than the cross and the resurrection. We talked about the resurrection a few weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about what happened at the cross. Do you, do you actually understand what physically happened that day? So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to John. We're going to use the gospel, his account, John's account of the, the crucifixion. <clears throat> and it's John chapter 19. Now this is a, a long story and... We're certainly not going to read all of it, but I am going to pick it up in verse 16. If you're, on a, if you're watching at home or maybe you're listening on a podcast, I'm, I'm using New American Standard. If you're on a device and you want to read uh, word for word there, John chapter 19, verse 16 is where we're going to start. It says, so he handed, that is, when Jesus was, was before all the government he was there with Pilate. Pilate handed him over to be crucified in verse 16. In verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. And it was there that they crucified him. And with him and two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and that inscription that he wrote was, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. You see, it would have been written in Hebrew because Hebrew was the language of religion. It would have been written in Latin because that was the, the language of like law and government, and Greek was the language of philosophy and culture. Pilate wanted to make sure everybody understood. And 
So in verse 21, it says the chief priest, that is, the, that, the chief priest would have been like the religious elite. Think of, it's a very big stretch to say it this way, but think of, uh, think of the, the, the elite pastors of Jews, if you will. The, the chief priests in verse 21, uh, or excuse me, in verse 20, they were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, because he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. So they didn't like that. Because they didn't want a king like that. And it's an epic part of history that Pilate was able to write those words. He did it as a joke, but it was no joke. In verse 20, it says, The soldiers then, they, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and they made four parts, a part of, to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, let's cast lots. Think of like rolling the dice, so to speak. Let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, God, God produced, he, he predicted that in the annals of history long before the crucifixion. Verse 25, therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, most likely that would be John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. What, what that would mean if you wanted to put that in street language, look at me, mom, look at me. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon the branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. That means he died. So I want to walk with you for a minute on what actually happened on that cross so that you'll understand it. This is a, a, just an image, a still image, of the, uh, what, what, one of the scenes from The Passion of the Christ. If you ever saw The Passion of the Christ and that Mel Gibson produced, this is just a, a scene from that. And, and, and so it's... It's hard to be completely historically accurate. We don't know if that's the exact specifications and all that, but we're going to use that image because I want you to understand what was actually going on there, what actually took place in there. Now, the, the, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they sure did perfect it. All right, They perfected it. In fact, crucifixion was so brutal... It was so brutal that even though the Romans perfected it, it was a Roman law that no Roman citizen, because it was so brutal, no Roman citizen could be crucified. That's how bad it was. So they crucified Jesus on a cross. Now, the first thing they did is they took him to a mock trial. That trial didn't last very long, and then they beat him. They beat him, and they beat him, and they beat him. If you ever saw the Passion of the Christ, that was probably quite, quite exactly like it was. They beat him with what was called a cat of nine tails. 
And in fact, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I watched an interview with Jim Caviezel, and they put a metal plate on his back so that because they wanted to make sure that when the Roman soldier in the movie beat him, that he actually hit him. Because so, it, would, it would look more real because that cat of nine tails would have been like a ball of leather with either pieces of bone or nails coming out of it. So that when it went into the person, it would pull the flesh out, right? So in the, there's a scene in that movie where you see Jim Caviezel try to scream, but he can't. And the reason is it's because the soldier, the actor, missed the metal plate. And he actually hit him. And he said, I tried to scream, but I couldn't. So this goes on and on, and they beat Jesus. And then after they beat him, it depends on how you read history, but some wonder if he carried a full cross all the way. He had to carry his own instrument of death, so he had to carry it. Uh, most, it was either one of two ways. It's hard to say. It was either he carried the whole cross, or many historians believe that the, 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 because cr crucifixion was one of the favorite ways for Romans to, to execute people that they didn't like, they would leave that, that, that central column there, they would leave it planted in the ground. Now that's actually a very good representation of it because Jesus wasn't 30, 40, 50 feet in the air like you see on a lot of these paintings. No, the Romans wanted you to see the face of the people. So they would, they, would, they would often do it in a high traffic area. So imagine Franklin Road, a place where people walk by a lot, right? Imagine a place back then when people didn't, they didn't have cars. They walked by. They put it on a major thoroughfare. And they wanted that cross to be low so that you could look into the eyes. And so, so he's not very far off the ground. That's, that's actually probably pretty, pretty on the mark right there. So either they... they they take him to the place, he, dra he drags or he, he drug the, the beam, just the, the horizontal beam there. Uh, many think that's what he drug. He took that beam, which in and by itself would weigh about 200 pounds. At, imagine dragging that after you've been beaten. So he drags that to the place of the skull, and it was there that they nailed his hands to the cross. Now you've got to understand, I know there's folklore and even stories written in, in, in hymns and even about them piercing the palm, but that's not what they did. Because if they, if they drove a nail through his palm, he would, it, it would rip out and he would fall off the cross. So what they did was they would, there was a, the, way, the way that your bone structure is, is they would, they would take a nail and they would put it just underneath, the, inside the wrist right there, so it would, it would hang underneath the bone. So that when you're hanging on a cross, you can't fall off. So it's getting worse, isn't it? So they put him on this cross, and, either, and the way they got him up there was they either hoisted him, if it was just, if, the, if the, the main vertical beam was already in the ground, then they hoisted him up there. Imagine that you're hanging there by bones inside your wrist, and they're, and they're taking you up there on a rope. Or if they, if they take you on the whole cross and raise you up, either way, the moment they secure you to that thing, the downforce of all of that that shakes you, imagine the pain. They took the feet, and what they would do is they would nail your 
feet together like this in such a way that you had to bend your knees. So if you really want to know how Jesus died, how he actually died, if there had been a coroner's report, the way that, that Jesus would have died was they bent your knees so that in order to breathe, you have to push yourself up and take a breath. But you can imagine how much blood he's losing. You can imagine after already being beaten and dehydrated, the reason they would often put something underneath the feet was not to help them, was to give them false hope so that they could feel a little bit underneath their feet and it would give them a little bit longer to stay up there. Sometimes crucifixion took two and three days for somebody to die. Two and three days. So he's on a cross and over time, as he's pushing himself up, you can imagine his body goes into full cramps. He cannot move. And so the way Jesus actually died is he suffocated, asphyxiation. He, he couldn't push himself up, and all the fluids and all the blood and all the stuff, and he, and he can't breathe, and he literally chokes to death. And that's how Jesus died. So when you look at these verses when it says they crucified him, You have to look into history to understand just how brutal it was. And over the next two weeks, we're going to look at this cross. And today we're going to deal with just a little bit of it. And the question comes not only after what happened and what happened when he was up there, but there's a, a larger question too, and, and that was kind of this. Why, why was the cross necessary? What, what, what actually had to happen? Why would that happen? Because we, we sing about it and we clap our hands over it and we, 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 we praise God and we talk about the power of the cross and, and that's all great, but do you really understand why it was necessary. It was necessary simply because sin had to be dealt with. Your sin and my sin had to be dealt with. You just sang a song, holy, holy, holy. You see, nothing sinful can be in the presence of God. Nothing. Nothing sinful can be in the presence of God. Read the Old Testament and you'll find that God wouldn't even allow people look at him because the holiness of God is so big that no man could survive. So even he tells Moses, stick your face in a rock and I'll pass by, but if you see me, you're going to die. God is so holy that nothing sinful can live in his presence. So the cross is necessary because sin had to be dealt with. Romans 6 says it this way. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin. That is actually the, the cost. The cost of goods for those of you in business. The, the wages of sin is death. That's actual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The wages, the, the penalty of sin is, is, is death, and sin will ultimately kill you. Ephesians 2 tells us that, that we were dead in our trespasses. We, we, we could not, there's no amount of self-help, there's no amount of do better, there's no amount of getting better, there's no amount of cleaning up that can allow you to stand in the presence of a holy God. So sin had to be dealt with. So let me, let me kind of give you an illustration of why this matters so much. Why was the cross necessary? The Bible, the Bible primarily uses three words for what I would call the human condition. That is your condition, my condition. The Bible primarily uses three words for the, the state that you and I find ourselves in. And those three words are basically these, sins, trespasses, and iniquity. Now, the, the word for sin is, is a word that actually comes from archery. It, it's, it's a word, harmartia. It just means that it means you missed the mark. It means an archer would pull back, and, and when he would release that arrow, it would mean that he missed the mark. He missed the target altogether. Sins, you know, lying, anger, bitterness. Anger's not a sin, but holding on to anger is. Bitterness, resentment, not forgiving, lust, greed, keep going. Sins. It means to miss the mark. And then trespasses carry with it a little more weight, if you will. You know in the model prayer, forgive us our trespasses. Trespasses and forgive us those who trespass against us. Trespasses, what is that? Trespass would be a little more, a little more sinister. For instance, a, a, a good example of trespassing would be adultery. It means, trespasses simply means there was a line, uh, there was a boundary that was marked out for you, and you chose to step outside the boundary. You crossed a line. It's got a little more Depth, a little more heavy. The human condition, though, if you read the scriptures, understand that sins and trespasses, now pay attention because this matters. Sins and trespasses are primarily acts of the will. Now, I didn't say 100%. But for the most part, I can, let's, just, let's pick lying and adultery. Let's pick those two. Okay, I can choose not to lie, right? I can choose not to lie. We, there's not a person in this room that hasn't lied on some level in your life, even if you were four. I can choose not to lie. I can also choose not to commit adultery. I, trespasses and sins, for the most part, are acts of the will. You can work really hard and you might come close to getting it right. But then there's another word for the human condition. And it's at the core of who we are. And that word is iniquity. And iniquity is not an act of the will. Iniquity is a condition. So think of sins and trespasses Think of them as symptoms of a disease. 
Think of, so, so what causes a person to sin and what causes a person to trespass has to do with an internal virus. It's an internal virus. And it's manifested in behaviors like sins and trespasses. But iniquity is what is fueling the problem. And for that, you need a savior. Because you may do better with sins and you may do better with trespasses, but friend, listen to me, you cannot do a thing about iniquity. You can't do a thing about iniquity. You can't get better with your iniquity. You can't somehow work yourself out of it. You can't come to church enough. There's nothing you can do with iniquity. It is part of who you are. And for that, you need a Savior. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the absolute best news you are ever going to receive in your entire time on planet Earth. It is the best information you're ever going to get. That when you understand what happened at that cross, that God demonstrates his love, that while we were sinners, nothing, see, nothing can stand in his presence that isn't literally covered in the blood of Jesus. So the way that we know that God loves us is to know that while we are sinners in our unredeemed state, this is what God is saying at the cross. When Jesus came to the earth in the form of a baby, what do we call him in the Christmas carols? Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, God with us, God walking among us. We call him Emmanuel. At the cross, what you see is a transition from God being with us to now God being for us. He's for us. And he's demonstrating that by his love. So what, what happens to me and what happens to you is that God looked at me and God looked at you and he says, here's the thing, Jason. I don't care how hard you try. There's never going to be a time when you're going to be good enough for heaven. Because I'm in heaven and I'm holy. So God looks at me and he says, so I tell you what, Jason, without my son, you, you have no hope with your iniquity. So what I'm going to let them do is I'm, I'm going to let them kill my son. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Sin had to be dealt with. So as we see Jesus moving from God with us to God for us, God demonstrates his own love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the love of God being proven in, in real time. And, and I really wonder, I wonder if, if I wonder if, Americans that go to church realize just what's going on right there. I wonder if you, I wonder if, I wonder if our proper understanding of the cross might 
somehow tighten up some of the things we care about in churches. Because when you understand what happened at the cross, what you see is in many ways just how far we've come from it. I can tell you that, that when, when you look at, at the, the last, at least in my ministry career, the last 30 years, I, I see us over time in American churches, we may talk about the cross some, but we really don't talk about what happens if you don't understand it. Because the Bible says... That without Christ, you will die in your sins. In fact, Ephesians 2 says you're already dead in your sins. So without Christ and without repentance, you are going to spend an eternity in hell. Good people go to hell every day. See, it's one thing for you to be sorry about your sins. It's one thing to be sorry about your sins. Ah, I know, I should do better. Repentance isn't being sorry about your sins. Repentance is understanding that without Jesus, I'm going to be cut off from God forever. And I want to tell you something. That is not a popular message, but I will tell you, a gospel that leaves hell out of the conversation is an incomplete gospel altogether. For we have to understand that no matter what we do or what we try or what we try, what we try to attempt, the love of God is so rich and it's so big and it's so wide that God is basically saying, he's not basically, he is saying to all of us, it is my will that none of you should perish, but you have to understand Read the first chapter of John's gospel. I love the first chapter of John's gospel because in there John says, for those that believed on his name, for those are the ones that get to inherit eternal life and be called the sons and daughters of God. You see, as I've told you many times, we are not all God's children. You really need to hear that. We are not, we are not all of God's children we are God's creation. But if you want to be in the family of God, there's no way to go about it other than through the cross. If, because the Bible says you have to be born again. You have to be born again. And let me tell you something, friends. On that day, that day that you die. You know, there is an appointed day for every one of you students. There is an appointed day for every one of you who are 80 and 85 and 90. There's an appointed day for every one of you mothers and fathers. There's an appointed day for every one of you watching at home. There's an appointed day that you are going to stop breathing oxygen. And when that day comes, your church membership will mean nothing to God. It's not going to get you anywhere. Your family tree will mean nothing to God. But wait, I came from a great Christian family. We're not talking about your mama. We're talking about you. You don't get to heaven by proxy. On that day when you take your, your last breath, 
being sorry for your sins. Sorry. It'll mean nothing to God. Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our advocate. It's a courtroom term. You ever had anybody vouch for you? I have. You ever had, had someone vouch? Oh, no, they're, they're okay, I promise. Many of you got your current job because somebody vouched for you. Oh, no, you can hire them I, or at least give them the interview. It's, it's going to be okay. So on the day that you die, there's going to be an advocate. And his name is Christ. And he's going to say to the Father, and the Father isn't mad. He's not mad. Father demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, he let his son be died. But he's, hey, what about him? Oh, no. He's one of ours. She, no, she, she repented. She understood the difference between being sorry for sins and, and actually knowing that you need a Savior. And so what I think is going to happen to scores and scores and scores of people is this pivotal moment in Jesus' life where the love of God was demonstrated so deep is that for many, it just looks like religion. And for many in the church, it looks like, no, but when I was 10, I, I came and we did the thing and they said I was good to go. If you look at your life, I want to ask you a question this morning. Did you experience redemption or did you just attach yourself to religion? And you better, you better think long before you answer that. I'm not trying to make you doubt anything. I'm saying you better think long. Did you experience redemption or did you attach yourself to religion? What, what, what happened to you? Because see, what most people do is they look back on their, their experience with joining the church and yeah, I was at a camp, or I walked the aisle and I was baptized. No, it, it, it's, it's an agreement. Now, I, I, I did the thing. They, they told me if I just would go up there and, and do that, then it would all be well. But then if you look back over the course of their life, you see no power of the Holy Spirit. You see no power manifested in fruits or change of worldview. If, listen, if you haven't experienced a perpetual, ongoing understanding of the power of God on your life, friend, I'm going to really ask myself, did I experience a religious experience or did I repent? Don't be like the rest of this world. Don't be like, don't let this happen to you. Listen to me really closely. Don't let this happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. What happens to many people in the church is they, they, they go through their whole life because it's all they've really ever known. Their mom, their dad, their, 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 their parents were part of it. They just kind of raised up in Christianity. And then that's why you see people coming, when people like me come at the age of 60, 50, 70, 80 years old, saying, hey, preacher, I really don't know what's going to happen to me. 
They've spent 50 years under a steeple. Because what they did was they took a big bite into religion, but there was no redemption. And if you know Christ, you know it. You know it. Don't let that happen to you. The love of God is so deep, and it's so wide, and it's so big that, that he, he is saying to you, you can have, you can be in the family, but there's only one way for that to happen, and that is for you to repent. And let the blood of the Son cover your iniquities. It'll show up in the manifestations of sins and trespasses. It'll make itself known in how you live and breathe and think and what you're addicted to and what you, what you crave and what your appetites are. It'll show up. The love of God is demonstrated and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter, but sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.